Welcome to the GTB podcast for December 2022, volume 60, number 12. My name is David Fazakri and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we talk about December's issue of DTB. But as it's the last podcast for 2022, I thought we'd start with some highlights from the year. We've each picked three to talk about. So James, let's kick off. What are your three highlights from 2022? Right. Well, coming in at number three um, is Monyaparavir, which we first picked up in January in an editorial where we were concerned that it was being evidenced by press release. I think Savage Javid had called it a game changer. And we looked briefly at the evidence around that from the move out study. We looked at it again in March. I think actually that was DTB Select, which looked at the Nejum research that covered that drug. And then we looked again in May and in October. And basically, this is a drug that was rolled out with great fanfare to reduce hospitalizations in theory by 50%. But as Jackie Wise detailed in the BMJ in October, the NHS bought 2 million doses. They've given less than 1%. And the preliminary results based on the panoramic study has found no significant difference in patients, given it with regard to hospital admissions. So um, a drug paved with good intentions, but failed to deliver. In its defence, you know, it was developed at a time when something was needed. Um, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to to have some honest appraisal now and say, actually, it was a good idea, but it hasn't worked. Totally. And of course, this could have been the same story with the vaccinations. And thank God, actually, the NHS and the government did invest in the vaccinations and they did work. And the story is very different. And this is the sort of the dilemma, isn't it, for for systems? You know, do you take the early evidence or do you wait for the full evidence? And I think one of the issues, which I think is a recurring problem, I think at the moment, is that there seems to be this requirement to get drugs through quicker and quicker and quicker, which means that more and more are failing actually to deliver what is promised. Um, and it means that patients are being treated with drugs that are ineffective. So I think um, it's just highlights, I think, that element to the therapeutic world that we live in. So what's your number three? Well, I've done mine in chronological order. So I'll start with my earliest one. So number three for me is the article that Mark Horowitz and Mike Wilcock uh, published in January's issue, which is about newer generation antidepressants and withdrawal effects. Uh, and for me, this, this picked up some important issues. One was the uncertainty over the evidence of effectiveness of antidepressants. And I'll come back to that in a second. Um, the other issues were it, it highlighted the problems that, that people see with, with stopping antidepressants uh, and how we tackle withdrawal effects and then highlighted the need for more support for people who, who are stopping their antidepressants and, and how to do that safely and effectively. Um, but for me, what this also highlighted was the problem that seems to have developed recently that when you criticise uh, the use of antidepressants as an immediate backlash from people with opposing views. Now, we all accept that robust scientific debate is welcome, it's part of the process, but somehow this seems a little bit further than that. And it, in, particularly in primary care, where these drugs um, are used widely, um, perhaps there is a need for greater scrutiny over their effectiveness. But I mean, what do you think? 
Yeah, I don't think an article in DTB has ever generated a letter to the Times. Um, there was, as you say, a remarkable response to it from, if you like, the SSRI lobby, um, which sort of then failed to materialise, didn't it? Again, what was interesting was that our take was about particularly its use in severe depression in primary care, and then NICE updated its guidance in June, and again, recognised that SSRIs are only a small part of the solution, and there are a number of other options we should be thinking about before reaching for SSRIs for people with less severe depression. Yeah, I think NICE's latest guidance actually was very balanced. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about my number two, which was actually September's editorial on stop advertising. But this was something which we discussed throughout the year um, together, didn't we? Continually about what was going on in, with NICE and the NHS with their websites, sort of just basically seemingly advertising the latest drug that they'd done a technical appraisal on. Um, and I think once again, in my theme of sort of what's going on in the therapeutic world, one of the things that's going on at the moment in the UK is this real shift for a life sciences strategy that's going to allow the NHS in the UK to become a sort of powerhouse for drug development, trials, clinical development, and then, you, you know, the idea that we can sell the drugs to the rest of the world. And we've seen the MHRA and NICE and the NHS really, I think, overstepping the mark around their role as a drug regulator and as a seemingly independent creator of technical appraisals and guidelines, and instead championing and to my personal opinion, advertising these drugs on their website. So we we wrote to all of them, as everyone knows, and um, we're sort of going to see how that pans out. But I think it is important to remember that drug advertising is tightly controlled and is actually unlawful to the general public. And there are strict rules when it comes to advertising to clinicians as well. And I think that also picks up your first, the monupiravir, which, as you said right at the start, it was it was hyped by press release right from the beginning and leads nicely into my second one, which is our article on in Clizaran, um, which we reviewed the effectiveness of it, as we know at the moment. So we set out the evidence for its use uh, and, and drew the conclusion that actually all we've got at the moment is surrogate outcomes. So despite the hype, because again, this is a medicine that's been mm. largely hyped by the government. Um, we have no outcome data on cardiovascular endpoints. They're all exploratory, uh, only reported in the adverse events section of the trials. And we won't know for certain whether this drug works until probably 2026 when the when the study is due to, to report. So here we have a drug largely hyped um, heavily pushed into primary care by the Department of Health, but very little evidence to support its use. Indeed. Yes, a real strange state of affairs. I really don't understand what this was all about. I know that there's an NHS strategy to reduce cardiovascular deaths, and there's a big push um, to achieve that. But I really don't understand where urgency within Clizaran came from to be honest it's um it is a really odd one and as you say you know once again nice websites talking about three hundred thousand lives going to be saved by this game changer and that, you know, it might happen but you can't say that on a public website without actually you can't say it at all because you can't advertise the general public but if you were going to do it to clinicians you have to have the full evidence there and everyone you know the abpi 
rules are, you know, they stick to them, actually, the drug companies. It, oddly enough, it, it's our regulatory that seem to have just lost their way, I think. Okay. Um, what's your third? So my third, and I think it, if you like, brings it all together. This has been our 60th year of the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin, and I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's highlighted to me just how important an independent drug bulletin is for the future safety of therapeutics and for quality prescribing. And, and, you know, it's been very heartening this year to see that there's a whole generation of new clinicians, our clinical pharmacists coming through, um, who I think recognise that and are interested in making sure that they, you know, really high quality prescribing. And I just think that, you know, I've seen that developing, we're getting, you know, more interest in our podcasts. And I think it's uh, never been more important than now that, you know, um, there is DTB. And I suppose my only sort of, I feel sometimes we're a bit like Wikipedia, you know, sort of people use us, but they don't really want to pay for it. And it'd be lovely if we could um, get some more subscriptions, um, either independent, you know, personal ones or badger your local postgraduate library to to get a subscription to us, um, because that would help us continue this work for the next 60 years. Next generation of leaders. Uh, yes. And just that moves nicely onto my third one. And gosh, you'd think we'd been working together for a few years now. Mine is also from the 60th, uh, first of our kind of 60th celebration uh, issues, which was in April. And it's Sid Wolf's article on disclosure of conflicts of interest, uh, in which Sid Wolf, who's um, founder of the US Public Citizen, and has been working in this field for a long time. He reminds us that in the USA, they have a comprehensive database of pharma payments to healthcare professionals. And he also showed why it's important, um, highlighting research findings that show that there is an association between payments made to clinicians and prescribing of, of products. Uh, so it highlights how poor the system is over here. Uh, we have a, a Disclosure UK database, but it's run by the ABPI. It's not mandatory and it's not comprehensive. Um, so looking across to a, to the USA shows how it can be done. But importantly, Sid points out that on its own, it's not enough. It's good to highlight conflicts of interest and to be aware of them. But actually, he makes the point we need to find other ways of tackling uh, the industry influence over the practice of medicine. So I thought it was a good way to start our, our kind of 60th anniversary issues. I mean, as you say, a really interesting article and just so surprising, I suppose, that in a country where sort of you would have thought sort of the socialism, if you like, of such a, a database um, would be frowned upon. The Americans are way ahead of us. And, and I think this year we've actually used it, haven't we, and discovered um, some conflicts of interest, which, which we were otherwise unaware of. So I think it is desperately important. And let's be honest, having a voluntary one is less than useless, because if you don't find it there, it, it doesn't mean anything. So um, it'd be really good if we could uh, lobby for a, as you say, mandatory, absolutely transparent uh, database. It'd make a huge difference, I think. And if anyone is at a loose end and wants to um, have a look at the American database, it's, it's worth delving into just for the eye-watering amounts of money that some clinicians receive from pharma. It puts the level of funding you see in, in Disclosure UK into the shade 
um, many, many thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars being paid to clinicians. But the, so if you want to amuse yourself, go and have a look at that. Right, let's move on. Let's look at the issue. Um, start with the editorial. So this month, you've penned the editorial, really interesting one. What's it about? So brain fog and HRT in a nutshell. And this was partially triggered by World Menopause Day. And um, I think uh, there's been, I think, a huge pendulum shift, hasn't there? And the whole narrative around HRT, we've obviously had uh, Davina McCall and Gwyneth Paltrow, Oprah Winfrey, you know, a lot of very high profile women talking about the menopause. And as a consequence, we've seen a huge increase in the use of HRT, about a doubling, in fact, in the last five years. We now have about 2 million women in the UK taking HRT. And I think one of the issues for us um, as GPs and as prescribers is there has been, as Paula Briggs from the British Menopause Society suggested, a sort of worrying increase in rather evangelistic misinformation around HRT, and in particular, some selective interpretation of various research studies. And I just wanted to pick out one element, this this concern around brain fog, or if you like, sort of cognitive impairment, and just look at the evidence for the use of HRT for just this one uh, symptom. And I was very helpful. The International Menopause Society actually provided some guidance in September on this. And my editorial just really talks around the evidence for this, which basically is very little. Um, actually, also, you know, some women are concerned that their cognitive decline around the menopause might be an indication of future dementia. And the uh, evidence for that actually is not the case. Um, and just really, and lastly, just basically, we say, that if that's the sole symptom of the menopause, actually HRT probably isn't recommended for you. But clearly it's a very important thing for other symptoms of the menopause. But it was just really to try and dig out some, some certainty in what is otherwise quite a difficult field at the moment. And, and I think that was particularly useful because it, it highlighted the issues. And what came across to me was that there is still um, really a, a lack of high quality evidence to help people make good prescribing decisions in this area uh, and around cognitive function and what happens during the menopause and whether HRT is any benefit. There just really isn't the quality of data to help make those decisions. What's fascinating is if you look at the evidence, it does seem that there is a dip in cognitive functioning around the menopause, which then actually lifts again later. So there's possibly a hormonal link here. It's just that HRT doesn't seem to be something which will make the difference, at least in that period. And just one quick thing to get your comment on. While we were doing research on this editorial, uh, we looked at the House of Commons report on menopause in the workplace, and it actually was very critical of primary care. And, and it says, you know, GPs being poorly informed and sometimes unsupportive in relation to diagnosing menopause. Um, what's your view? Is is that a thing you recognise? I think it is, but I wonder whether it's balanced. Uh, HRT is incredibly complex because of the pressure. I think general practice is under. What tends to happen sometimes is patients will come in with a primary condition, something that's worrying them an illness. And then they'll say, oh, and by the way, you know, I'm worried I'm going to the menopause. And the GP's already spent some time with you and they've got sort of three minutes. And it takes a lot of time to go through this because there is still, whatever people say, there is still 
risks associated with HRT, both around venous thromboembolism and around cancer risk. And that needs to be teased out. And there, you know, for, for every, I would say for every five women I see, one or two actually, if you have the time to talk it through, actually say, well, I don't think that's for me now. You know, the, the expectation so often at the moment is that, you know, they'll come in and they just presume that you are completely ignorant to what HRT is. It's difficult when you've been doing it for 30 years <laughs> to sort of suck that up and say, yes, well, okay, let's let's start and see if we can make some sense of all this. So I think it's a difficult area because it's so broad. There's so much expectation. There's so much hype. And I think sometimes we need to sort of slow down and, and give GPs and their patients the time to deal with this properly. And at the moment, that's in short supply. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, let's move on to a DTB select item. This one gives an overview of a study of the effect of sodium containing paracetamol on cardiovascular endpoints. What did it look at and, and what did it find? Well, I suppose the sort of sun headlines would be fizzy paracetamol kills you. Right. Uh, <laughs> because the basically we have two UK cohort studies um, which took data from 2000 to 2017. They looked at 60 to 90 year old people who were taking soluble, well, they were taking paracetamol um, and they compared those that were taking soluble paracetamol with those taking normal paracetamol. And they looked at two different cohorts, those with hypertension and those without. And the bottom line is, remember, these are cohort studies, so we can't give a causal link. It's only an association. But those taking soluble paracetamol had an increased risk of cardiovascular disease like heart attacks and strokes with the numbers needed to harm of about 100 over a year. So there was rates of about 5.6% in the soluble paracetamol group versus 4.6% instant rate in the normal paracetamol group. And if you looked at deaths in hypertensives, numbers needed to kill NNK. Now, of course, it's not true, it's association, but you know I'm going. NNK was 67. So there seems to be an association between soluble paracetamol and cardiovascular risk and death. And the question is, is that a causal association? Is it because elderly patients taking paracetamol have other things going on, which this study failed to sort of pick up? But I think it's very clear that some soluble paracetamol contains 400 milligrams of sodium per tablet. So if you took eight a day, that's about three grams of sodium a day, which we know is well above the sort of recommended total intake of sodium. Now, this is a subject we've looked at quite a few times at DTB, but, but it still is an issue, isn't it? Uh, I think the other studies have, have found similar findings. I think this is the, the obviously the latest one that has shown quite a strong association between sodium-containing paracetamol and CVD events. Uh, what does that mean for you in terms of your clinical approach? What do you do? Do you prescribe or, or avoid prescribing? What about selling um, from, from a pharmacy? Should we be much tighter on, on selling anything that contains this much sodium? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because there are certainly patients who are very wedded to the concept of soluble paracetamol and there are 
fizzy vitamins, which people are also very wedded to, who think they make a big difference. This is a really useful one, though, to look at. I think, did, did we say it was 2 million prescriptions last year from open prescribing? I think we did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is a great one for clinical pharmacists and GPs to say, let's just do a review of how many prescriptions of soluble paracetamol we've, have we got on repeat. And let's just check and see if we can't reduce that. And we've certainly did that in our practice some time ago because of concerns about this. Um, because it does seem that from a, a sort of clinical point of view, okay, you may have some patients with swal- swallowing difficulties perhaps, um, but there are other options um, rather than using fizzy paracetamol. So I think I think it is one that there's no, it's one of the things where if fizzy paracetamol disappeared overnight, would there be a major issue? I'm not sure there would be. So I think it is something that's worthwhile looking at in your practice and really trying to just put the pressure on reducing it. And that's before we even look at paracetamols, whether we should be using it at all. But well, yes, maybe that's that's a subject for another discussion. Yes. Uh, look at nice guidance on osteoarthritis. The the draft, it, that's, it's no longer in there anymore. Um, so you're absolutely right. And of course, we did a study, I think this year, which just suggested that if you're le- less than 60 kilograms in size, you shouldn't be giving maximum dose of paracetamol to elderly patients. You know, I think we also covered a DTP select that suggested paracetamol can increase blood pressure. You know, it's not the sort of safe drug that we once thought. But then, as I always say, there's no such thing as a safe drug, just safe clinicians. And on that note, let's move to our, our <laughs> final, a quick brief look at our main article this month, which is a kind of very DTB look at evidence. So this is about vedolizumab in the management of inflammatory bowel disease. Brief highlights. Yeah, very brief highlights, because this is quite a techie, as you say, um, article. Basically, vedolizumab, vedolizumab was passed by NICE in, I think, 2014 for use in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And it's usually given as eight weekly injections. And what we looked at in this paper was there's been a, a sort of move by some clinicians to give shorter intervals if they felt that there wasn't a, a therapeutic effect or if there was a loss of response to the therapeutic effect. And in this article, we look at what the evidence is for that. And what's interesting, and I suppose what stimulated it was that that's a licensed indication that you can reduce the dose interval, so give it more often if there is a loss of response. But in the appraisal from NICE, it doesn't seem to get a reference that this is an option. So one of the questions we were trying to tease out is whether have NICE based their cost effectiveness on this drug being given every eight weeks? And then if you start giving it every four weeks, how does that Im- impact on, on its cost effectiveness? So it was it, for me, it was a useful review of the evidence for increasing the frequency, but seemed actually the evidence was quite weak. Yes, you're right. So we have no randomized control trials to suggest that dose escalation works. We have got some open trials, which suggest perhaps a 50% response in uh patients who've had a loss of response to the drug. Um, but you're right, it's very odd that vedolizumab was given a technical appraisal, but actually in its uh, summary of product characteristics actually offered the option of four weekly injections as well as eight weekly, even though the trials done, I think um, phase three trial shows no benefit of four weekly injections over eight weekly as a starting point. Um, we had a situation where, you know, it's being used, but we have absolutely no way of knowing whether this is cost effective or not. 
No, indeed. I had a quick look back at the um, licensing information for it and the assessment report, but couldn't see anything in that either to support the increased frequency for people with loss of response. But I may have missed it, but I have to go back and have have another read. But uh, yes, an interesting one. So thank you very much for that. Um, You can find all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com and all our previous podcasts are also available. Just click the podcast button at the top of the page. We are about to release some additional podcasts in which I interview some of our board members and other people who've had a connection with DTB over the years. And these will appear over the next few months to celebrate our 60th anniversary. And indeed, the first one is now available. And it's an interview with Dr. Joe Congleton, who's DTB's respiratory expert. She sits on our editorial board. And in the interview, we talk about her long role with DTB and also some of the major changes in therapeutics that she's noticed over her career, and particularly around the management of COPD and asthma. Uh, As ever, love to have your comments on any of our content whether it be print, online or podcast, let us know what you think by emailing us at dtb at bmj.com. And if you want to get involved, again, let us know. You can suggest topics, be a peer reviewer, or whatever you'd like to do with DTB, email us at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening to us, and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the January 2023 podcast. (music) 